0: If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope and pray that you do, uh, go ahead and take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Over these last few Sundays, as we have opened the Word of God together, I typically start by catching up to speed any new visitors that we have, of telling the new visitors we have been studying through Daniel. You're you're at the very tail end of a sermon series. We are just in the, the midst of a... A crazy long prophecy and trying to give kind of every element leading up to chapter 11 in Daniel and as I was thinking about this morning I was thinking about the reality of I I have failed to address those of you who have been with us for maybe about three years the last three years we have gone through the book of Revelation and now Daniel and I know that that's in The incorrect order, people have asked, why did we do Revelation first and then Daniel? We should have done Daniel, then Revelation. I know uh, I wasn't expecting to do all of Revelation. It's totally in God's hands the way that it worked out. But as I was thinking through the reality of of what we've seen over the last three years, if you've been with us for about three years, we've studied Revelation from chapter one all the way to the end, verse by verse, word, word for word through it. And now we're coming to the end of a study in Daniel, Again, just line by line, verse by verse from the very beginning to the end. And we've covered a lot of prophecy, more prophecy than most books in the Bible. And if you've been with us for those three years, you might be coming to the end of this sermon series going, man, it sounds the same. We're getting similar themes, similar concepts, and prophecy is getting difficult to to keep on waiting through, especially when it comes to things like the Antichrist that are so full of evil and wickedness and sorrow and despair. And to that, I would say, I agree with you. That's why I was thinking about it. I agree with you. We've been trudging through prophecy for three years now. And most of the prophecy has been really bad prophecies about really bad things that are gonna happen. So I agree with you. But I want to just say this, just hold on because we only have two more sermons after this sermon in Daniel 12. We have two sermons in Daniel 12 and and then one sermon to kind of recap everything and then we're done. And most likely since we've covered Revelation and Daniel, we're done with this kind of prophecy for a while. So let's lean into this prophecy for just a few more Sundays together. Let's press into it because I think That there are things that God still has to teach us that are absolutely relevant, practical, appropriate, and necessary, even for this very Sunday. Brothers and sisters, I I was finishing up this sermon long before I got the call from Shelly and Glenn. And yet what we are discussing this morning absolutely fits what we're going through in this season with them. So let's not run away from the end of this prophecy. Let's lean in just a few more times. Let's press into these prophecies as dark and as bleak as they may be. Let's press in to get what God wants us to see. And then we'll take a deep breath at the very end together as we finish Daniel. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to finish out this chapter this morning. And we'll start in verse 36. So let's read this together and ask God's blessing on our time. Daniel writes Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God, and will speak astonishing things against the God of gods, and he will succeed until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and desirable things. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who recognize him and will cause them to rule over the many and will apportion land for a price." And at the, at the time of the end, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter lands, overflow them, and pass through. And he will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will send forth his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape but he will rule over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the desirable things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But reports from the east and from the north will dismay him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and devote many to destruction. He will set up the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain and yet he will come to his end and no one will will help him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for this amazing book and the privilege that we've had over these last several months to study these amazing prophecies that have pointed us to your sovereign control over all things. They've pointed us to the reality of the wickedness that we see in this world and and how it will continue and will thrive. And yet you will, at the end of all of it, you will come back and establish your kingdom and rule with uh, authority and peace and bring in righteousness and everlasting joy. We long for that day. And we long for that day as we've studied these verses to, to see you bring about that, to accomplish that work, even in our midst. But God, until we see that day, until we know you are accomplishing that in our midst, until we know that you are doing that, we want to be reminded yet again this morning of the reality of evil, of the reality of wickedness, of the reality of sorrow and suffering and despair that comes from the sin that we see in this world. We want to be realistic with our understanding of what is going to happen in the end. And as we see these realities unfold, we want your help to understand how to appropriate them into our own lives. Father, as we pray every Lord's day, we ask that you would allow your spirit, Holy Spirit, we, we plead with you to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you doing that work of illuminating our understanding, we will not see what we need to see. And there is so much here that will change us and transform us if, it, if we would see it rightly. So Father, give grace, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and Jesus be exalted. We pray in, the, in your precious and matchless name. Amen. In these verses, we are going to see two main realities that I believe are absolutely impactful and relevant for us today. But before we do, we have to ask one overarching question, and then we'll get into the the thrust of these verses. So the first question that we need to ask and answer is, who is this speaking of? Who is this talking about? Who is this king that is referenced in verse 36. It says, then the king, then the king, who is this king? And if you say it's Antiochus Epiphanes, Uh, that would be a a very good educated guess because that's who we've been talking about this whole time. That's why there's even a question mark here because it seems like we've just been talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. We've been talking about what he's going to do. We've been talking about his reign of terror. And then it just says, then the king. So there, there would be a jarring nature if this moves from Antiochus to another individual that would seem a bit jarring. And I agree with you. It is a bit jarring. But I think that I can prove to you that this can't be Antiochus Epiphanes. I think I can prove to you that it can't be him. And so that's why we have to ask the question, so then who is it? If it's not him, who is it? Here's why I think I can prove to you that this isn't Antiochus Epiphanes. I think that there's a shift here that happens in verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall. These are the Maccabeans in the time of Antiochus in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the time of the end Because it is still to come at the appointed time. So we saw the appointed time, the appointed time, the appointed time. We saw that over and over and over again. Verse 27, verse 29, verse 35. But now there's a shift here in language that talks about the time of the end. We see it here in verse 35. It's going to show up again in verse 40. There's now a shift. We've got appointed times on God's timeline. But now we've got the end, the time of the very end. So I think what God's doing is is fast-forwarding all the way to the time of the end. There's a shift in language. And if you go to chapter 12, just drop down to chapter 12, verse one. This is a continuation of the prophecy. The prophecy doesn't end in chapter 11. It continues. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand. There will be a, a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. And then many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. So the prophecy seems to end itself at the very end of all time of everlasting joy and everlasting destruction. There's a shift. There's a noticeable shift. Another reason why I think that this is a different individual is because verses 36 through 39 give us another introduction. They're they're describing this individual. And so if this is Antiochus, it would be weird to get yet another introduction to him because we were already introduced to him. It'd be very strange. Now, if you're already thinking, wait, we're moving from Antiochus to the very end of time, that's over 2,000 years of a gap in human history. And that's a leap to say we're just moving from one verse to another verse and there's 2,000 years between. Again, I agree with you. That is a leap, but it's not something that we haven't seen before. If you go back to the beginning of the prophecy in chapter 11, we leapt from Xerxes in Persia to Alexander the Great in Greece. That leap alone happened in the span of half a verse, and that leap is 150 years. So yes, 2,000 years is a lot longer than that, but we've seen leaps happening over and over again, especially in Old Testament prophecy. A third reason why I think it's very obvious that this can't be Antiochus is because none of what is written about this individual happened with Antiochus. We know how Antiochus died. We know how he lived his life. We know how the end came. And literally none of what is described in these verses describe anything close to Antiochus. Just look at it. Verse 36 the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. That's not what Antiochus did. Remember, he commanded people to worship Zeus. He commanded people to say, bow down and worship Zeus. He had his image and then he had the image of Zeus. So he didn't magnify himself above Zeus. He said, Zeus is above me. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. That's definitely not true. Because Antiochus said, worship the god of my father, Zeus. Verse 38, uh, he will honor a god whom his fathers did not know. That's not true of Antiochus because he honored Zeus who his fathers did know. Down in verse 45, he will come to his end in Jerusalem at the holy mountain in Israel. We know Antiochus died in Persia. That's not where Antiochus died. Antiochus died in in Persia, not in Israel. So none of what is written about of this individual fits with Antiochus. And so if this is not Antiochus, we've got a big problem because everything we read about Antiochus earlier in this chapter literally was fulfilled in everything that he did. And now to, to change it and to say somehow either Daniel messed up or God messed up, that we're, we're in blasphemous territory at that point. That's why, a fourth reason, that's why the testimony of the early church, they all took this to not be Antiochus. They took this to be some other figure that they already began calling the Antichrist. So here's Jerome who wrote 1,600 years uh, before uh, the the timing of us understanding this today. He wrote these, these words, quote, those of our persuasion believe that all of these things in this text are spoken prophetically of the Antichrist, who is to arise in the end of time. And virtually everyone sees this individual being different from Antiochus. And since this is the last king of the world, as it appears that this is according to chapter 12, then it would have to be the Antichrist. And if it is the Antichrist, it fits perfectly with the descriptions of the Antichrist seen in the book of Revelation, seen in the book of Ezekiel, seen in the descriptions of what's going to happen in the end times in Zechariah. It fits perfectly. So it doesn't fit at all with Antiochus. It fits perfectly with the description of the Antichrist. And that wouldn't be that far-fetched for us to understand Daniel writing about the Antichrist because Daniel already wrote about the Antichrist. He already wrote about him in Daniel chapter 2. He wrote about him in Daniel chapter 8, the little horn. He already gave us an understanding of Antiochus Epiphanes being a little a Antichrist, but a a prefiguring of who this guy is going to be. We said it last week. If you want to know what Antichrist looks like, just look at Antiochus. Del Ralph Davis says, in Antiochus, one sees a foreshadowing, a scale model of the final opponent of God's people. The final scourge will be like Antiochus, only much, much worse. So I believe that these verses, verse 36 through 45, deal with not Antiochus Epiphanes, they deal with the Antichrist. And in this portrait of the Antichrist, which leads us all the way to the very end of time, that's why I said this prophecy is massive in its expanse. It starts with Cyrus at the beginning of chapter 11, and it goes all the way to the end of time in chapter 12. This is one of the biggest prophecies in the entire Bible. And as we see this man live out the course of his life, this portrait of this evil, wicked man, we're given two just massively weighty realities that are relevant to our life today. So reality number 1, as we see these verses speaking of the antichrist in the end times, reality number 1 is this. Evil, persecution and suffering will continue and get worse until the end. These verses teach us that evil, persecution and suffering, and we're going to look at persecution a lot more specifically next Lord's Day, Lord willing. In chapter 12, because of the persecution that's going to come upon the Jewish people in that period of great tribulation. We're going to look at that. Evil persecution and suffering will continue and will get worse until the end. This is what we are being told in these verses. Look at what this king does. Look at what Antichrist does. Verse 36 He will do as he pleases, seemingly unstoppable. Whatever he wants to do, he will do it. He will blaspheme God, he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak astonishing things against the God of gods. This is exactly what Paul says he's going to do in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse four. The man of lawlessness, quote, will oppose everything and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So John writes about him as the antichrist. Paul writes about him as the man of lawlessness. And here in Daniel, we're told he's a king. And in verse 36, it says that he will succeed. His evil will flourish. He will not be stopped. Verse 37, he will show no regard to, for the gods of his fathers. Again, uh, that it can't be Antiochus because uh, he did show regard for Zeus. Verse 37, he will disdain the love of women. He will... Um, show no desire for women. There's different translations for that verse in verse 37. Literally in Hebrew, it just says, he rejects love of women. He rejects love of women. So there's kind of two main interpretations on this of what he's going to do. Either he will be uh, homosexual or he will reject the family system. He won't get married and he will tell other people not to get married. It could be one of those two ideas. Interesting just to note, if you read older commentaries on Daniel, Daniel, they'll say, there's no way it could be that he's homosexual because there's no way that a political power, a political ruler will be able to be so involved openly in something that's so taboo and wrong. uh, There's no way he's gonna get away with that. Now we look at our culture and our context and we see, oh, it's very possible that that could happen. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's just that he's destroying the family system. He doesn't get married. He doesn't want others to get married. He just rejects the family altogether and doesn't favor normal marital relations. He magnifies himself above everything. He is God in his mind. He alone is God in his mind. Why, do, why does evil continue? Why, If, you, if somebody were to ask you, why does evil continue? Why is evil still happening? Why is it being perpetuated in this world? I think one of the reasons why you can answer here from these verses, one of the reasons why evil continues is because the heart of evil is when we hear those words in the Garden of Eden, you will be like God. And we say, yes, we latch onto to that. And we say, I want that. The heart of sin, the heart of evil is to say, I want to be like God. And this man hears that temptation from the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. And this man is finally able to live that out to its completion. The echoes of that statement in the Garden of Eden have run throughout all of human history, but here in the end times, it will finally culminate in the Antichrist. He he will be so boastful, he'll make other people worship him. And it's crazy to me, as I was thinking through this, I was reading through this going, wait, he's going to make other people worship him as God. He's a human being. Remember when Jesus was on the earth and he says, I am God, even people close to him go, ah, I don't know, I don't know if you are because I babysat you. You're just a kid. I know who you are. Maybe you're a really good human, but you're not God. Like, that's, that's not who you are. They struggled with that because they knew him. They grew up with him. They knew that he was human. And so, too, the Antichrist, he's going to be human. Demonically inspired, yes, but he's going to be human. So, as I'm thinking, going, wait, if Jesus, if people looked at Jesus and said, uh, I don't know if you're human or if you're God, I think you're just a human... How are people going to look at Antichrist and say, he's God and we're going to worship him? I would tend to think that reasonable people aren't going to follow a man like that. But the Bible is going to tell us the whole world will be deceived by him and will follow him. Why? I think there's a number of reasons why, but I think one reason is because otherwise reasonable people are far too eager to become God makers If I have the power to say, ooh, that guy's a God, and I put him on a pedestal, then I'm able to say, we made that guy. That guy's God because of us. And so he becomes God in this world. Verse 38, he will honor the God of fortresses. Literally just the word fortresses is a strong place. So he will either worship his own strength or his own power. Or some people would say he worships worships war. He worships uh, the the ability to have conflict and succeed. Verse 38, no other king did that. He will give honor to those who recognize him. Um, He will start to parcel out this military might to other people. And as he is being worshiped as God, if you refuse to worship the one true God... You don't just stop worshiping, you worship other things. And so as he refuses to worship the one true God, he worships war. He worships strength and power and might. And he divides, verse 39, he divides the land between 10 kings, 10 princes. We see this in Revelation 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. There are 10 horns in Revelation 17, verse 12, 10 political groups, 10 administrative regions with 10 kings ruling all under the authority of the Antichrist. Here's that description. He's going to parcel that out. He's going to let other people for a price buy into his kingdom and rule under his authority. Ezekiel 38 tells us who these countries are. They're the modern day Stan nations. They are um, Persia. Ezekiel 38 verses 5 through 6 describes Persia, which is modern day Iran. Ethiopia, which is modern day Sudan. Uh, Libya, a bunch of other countries that are in the Middle East. He's going to make peace by paying people off and his wickedness will succeed. Then there's a transition in verse 40 to the end of his reign and his rule. There's going to be a massive conquest, a military conquest. Verses 40 through 45 describe this final campaign. It's also described in Ezekiel 38 in Revelation 16, Revelation 19. The king of the north will collide with the king of the south. So the king of the south Back in the context of chapter 11, dealing with Antiochus, that's uh, the Ptolemies, that's Egypt. This could be Egypt as well, or this could have kind of blown up to all of Africa, according to Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 16. At that time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him. There's two ways to take this. You could either take it as uh, Antichrist is in between king of the north and king of the south, and they're both fighting against him, or you could take this as he's Antichrist is the king of the north fighting against the king of the south. There's pros and cons to both ways you take that. But the bottom line is there's going to be a massive conquest. And finally, the Antichrist will enter, verse 41, the beautiful land. I personally would take the king of the north to be the Antichrist because he's going to enter the beautiful land. And we know that that's exactly what Antichrist is going to do. He's going to start hearing rumors of his... Political alliance is starting to fail, starting to falter, and he's going to go back to the middle of everything in his kingdom, which is Israel, so that he can take a stand there against everyone that's pressing in on him. Many countries will fall, verse 41, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. This is very interesting that that's what happens because in Revelation 12, verse 6, we are told That Israel has taken during the great tribulation. They're taken and they're kept safe somewhere in the region of Jordan. Which is exactly where Edom, Moab, and Ammon is. So again, if you understand Daniel, when you read Revelation. And I would encourage you when we get to the end of our study in Daniel. I would encourage you to read through Revelation. Because you're going to see a lot of things and go, oh, that's what that was. And now it totally makes sense. This is why the running joke is we should have studied Daniel before Revelation. And I know I get that. But this is exactly what John was expecting his readers to understand and to remember. Recall that God said, Antichrist is going to go to war with everybody in the world, but there's going to be three places, three locations where you can find refuge. And Revelation chapter 12 says that God takes his people to that location to keep them safe. So, Revelation 13 then goes on to describe verses 42 and 43 when The Antichrist is going to send forth his hand against the other countries. He's going to ultimately try to destroy Egypt and it's not going to be able to escape. He's going to plunder all of their um, valuable things. And then verse 44, he's going to get terrified as he hears that reports are coming from the east and the north against him. And he's going to be paranoid that he's going to be attacked. So he's going to go back to Israel. Verse 45, he's going to set up his camp in Israel. His royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful Holy Mountain. Between the seas, so between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. We would say between the Med and the Dead. So he's stuck in the middle between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea in Jerusalem. And he sets up camp there. And that's where he's ultimately going to be destroyed. As the Battle of Armageddon rages, which we looked at in Revelation 19. But the point is, in all of this, his reign of terror, which I believe... Is for seven years. I think we could prove that. And we'll talk more about that next week. His reign of terror will come to an end. End of verse 45. He will come to his end and no one will help him. The first point that we need to see and be reminded of yet again, and again, I know that we've gone through this before, but we just need to be reminded yet again, evil, persecution, and suffering will continue. It's not going to let up. It's not going to relent. It happens all the way until Christ comes back. But upon that backdrop, and I believe this is the entirety of the the message of gospel hope, upon that reality and that backdrop, point number two that we've seen twice in this text, evil, persecution, and suffering will only continue until God says enough. Enough. Evil, persecution, and suffering will only continue. It will continue, and it will succeed, and it will go forth, but it will only continue until God steps in and says, enough. You saw that back in verse 36. If you go back to verse 36, the king does as he pleases. He will succeed until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He's going to do his work. And then he's going to come to his end because there's a decreed end to his work. And then in verse 45, he will come to his end. There is coming a day when evil will be finished. There's an appointed time to the end of the suffering that the Antichrist will bring. And we've seen it over and over again in this chapter. Until it is accomplished, until it is finished, the end is in sight. There's a very sad ending here in verse 45 for the Antichrist, but don't shed a tear for him. Dale Ralph Davis writes, I love this. His obituary is so terse, so brief, so abrupt, that it's dismissive. A fascinating treatment for a deity who conquered nations and oppressed saints. And yet he's wiped off the stage of history in a mere six Hebrew words. He will come to his end and no one will help him. Sinclair Ferguson writes, the Antichrist's defeat will be as inauspicious as his rise to power was meteoric. There is a devastating, presumably deliberate anticlimax to the progress of evil. In fact, the Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. that Christ will consume him with the breath of his mouth. Ferguson goes on to say, if we could parody T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men, this is the way the Antichrist ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And so Dale Ralph Davis says, we must be prepared because in this world we will have tribulation, but do not think much about the, and he puts it in quotes, the tribulator. We're gonna have tribulation, but don't think much about the tribulator. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying, he will be easily disposed of. This should put steel in our bones as we face that final scourge of history. Remember the whole point of this prophecy. The whole point of this prophecy was Daniel asking, when are we gonna be back on our land at peace? It's been almost 70 years. You told us it would be 70 years of exile. We'd go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem, and we'd be at peace. I want peace I want to be done with being thrown into the lion's den or thrown into fiery furnaces. I want to be done with that. When are we going to be done with that? And God's answer in chapter nine and chapter 11 is yes, you'll go back, but you won't have immediate peace right away. Chapter 11 fleshed this out for us in great detail. You're going to have other nations, other countries. This is the time of the Gentiles. You will be in your land, but other people, Gentiles will be reigning over you, ruling over you. And you won't be at peace. Okay, fine. But when Messiah comes, he's cut off, and then then we'll have peace. He he's raised from the dead, then we'll have peace. And that's where Gabriel is still saying no. He's trying to recalibrate Daniel's understanding of what to expect. You're not gonna have peace until Jesus comes back. If we could sum all this up, that's what this is saying. You're not gonna have peace until Jesus comes back. It's gonna be bad and it's gonna get worse. And then Jesus will come back. So don't bank on getting peace here. Don't plan on having peace here. Plan on it being difficult. But know that peace is coming. To which I say, I don't know if you're like me, but I go, well, if it's coming, why not now? If you're promising that we're going to get it then, can we just back it up? A few hundred thousand years? Come on, I I don't know what his time, is it gonna be thousands of years later, hundreds of years later? It could be three years from now. Can we just back it up to right now? Can we back it up to this moment? Can we back it up to a place where we no longer have to worry about the evil in this world taking over us and getting into our culture and into our daily living? We say with the saints, God, how long, O oh Lord, how long? If we know that peace is coming, why can't we have it now? Why can't we have it now? And to that, our God has said over and over again in his word, wait, wait. You remember in our study through Habakkuk? Just wait. It's coming, but just wait. And when it comes, you will be blown away by what I'm doing. You couldn't even imagine it now. So wait. Again, if you're like me, I go, I don't like waiting. (laughs) I don't want to wait. Nobody likes to wait. And God says, wait. Evil abounds. Peace is coming. In the meantime, we wait. What does that waiting look like? Well, number one, it's an active waiting. It's an act of waiting. One of my concerns, as I preach what I believe the reality of the scriptures is teaching, that evil will continue and get worse. One of my concerns is that we would hear that and go, well, it's all going to get worse anyway. Why try? I'm going to sit in my lazy boy. I'm going to watch the world burn and hope it doesn't affect me. Why try? That's not at all what the passage says. By the way, that's not at all what... Michael's Gabriel's response to Daniel at the end of chapter 12, Daniel's gonna say, "Um, I don't really understand everything that you just said and I need some more information. And God's gonna say, just go do what I told you to do. Just go, you have enough to go and do. It's not go hide yourself, it's go and do, go and live, go and be a purified saint. We are trying as evil flourishes in this world we are, it's an act of waiting where we are trying to dam up as much evil as we possibly can. So don't hear these words that I believe are biblical, that it's going to get worse. Don't hear that as saying, so we shouldn't try. No, no, no. We try with everything that we have. We plead with people to repent. We share the gospel with everyone that we come into contact to. We do as much work as we possibly can do to damn up evil. Ours is an act of waiting. While we do that, ours is a realistic waiting. Ours is a realistic waiting. Knowing that evil is going to continue and going to get worse, we don't grow weary or get dismayed. We can be shocked and saddened by the evil that we see going on in the world today, but we aren't surprised by it. There are going to be triumphs and setbacks. We know that. It's going to be moments and seasons where it just seems to be going a lot better than we thought. And then moments where it just seems to be accelerating into evil. We know there's going to be pain. That's what we looked at in Ecclesiastes. We know there's going to be pain in this life. The majority of the Psalms are lament Psalms. Why? Because the majority of life is hard. It's suffering. It's pain. But it doesn't shock us. It doesn't send us into that sense of, I don't know what to do with this. We have a category for it. We're not surprised by it. We're we're saddened by it. We're sorrowful over it. But ours is a realistic waiting. We have a hopeful waiting We have a realistic waiting. We have an active waiting. We do all of this as we rely upon the Lord. Ours is an active waiting, number one. Ours is a realistic waiting, number two. And finally, number three, ours is a hopeful waiting. Ours is a hopeful waiting. As we are pressing into the reality of how life is going to get worse, we don't do so with discouragement in our hearts or with some pessimistic take on life. No, we're hopeful. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 says. This is why Paul wrote these words. Momentary, light, affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. but The things which are not seen are eternal. There's something happening here in these moments of suffering, trial, evil. There's something happening We talked about this last week. God is never going to waste one moment, one millisecond of your pain if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. John Piper puts it this way. I love this. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all of your affliction light in comparison to eternity and glory there, but all of your affliction is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature from fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get in eternity because of it. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, we can't see what it's doing. that's why Paul says, don't look at what is seen. So when your mom dies, when your child dies, when you have cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and kills someone you love, don't ever say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose Heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and you are cared for. This doesn't mean that we don't have sadness. We have sadness. We have sorrow. But as Paul will go on to write in 2 Corinthians 6:10, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's a way to be crying weeping before the Lord with sorrow in your heart and still have joy. So ours is a hopeful waiting. And when I say hopeful, I don't mean worldly hope. I don't mean fingers crossed. I really hope that this works out for us. I mean hopeful in the biblical sense of the word. Hoping in the Bible is when you have a conviction that I know something's gonna happen. I'm assured that it's gonna happen. And brothers and sisters, we are assured that evil will one day end because of what we've been shown In chapter 11, all of that history, remember the last two sermons, all of that history, all of the things that we studied, all of that prophecy that was given that was ultimately fulfilled, literally fulfilled. Just think about it this way verses 2 through 35 in Daniel 11, verses 2 through 35. How many prophecies do you think were literally fulfilled? They were given, how many prophecies were given in those verses? and were fulfilled, literally, historically, we can see that they were fulfilled. How many? Just come up with a number in your mind. How many? It's easily over 100. And some estimate it's 135 to 138. 130 prophecies that God made about human history in just 35 verses, and they came to pass exactly as he said. So why does he now give us a Prophecy about the future, he's telling us, guys, I got it all here and it all worked out and it all made sense and it all literally was fulfilled. Guess what? It's all going to literally be fulfilled in the end as well. He's going to make it happen just like he made it happen earlier. For God to know and ensure that such details occur in history means that he must have all knowledge, but not only all knowledge, he must have all power to bring about what he knows to completion and fruition. And he doesn't just have all knowledge and all power. He has and is all goodness. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and you do good. Therefore, all of Daniel 11 serves as an assurance. That's why we say biblical hope. It's an assurance that the prophecy still unfulfilled will be fulfilled with the same precision as the earlier ones were. But as we wrap up chapter 11, our ultimate comfort in the midst of evil thriving, in the midst of suffering and trials. Our ultimate comfort does not come in the explanation of why these things are happening. Those, we were given that. It's for refining, for purging. But our ultimate comfort doesn't come from the explanation of the suffering, though God does give that. It doesn't even come from knowing the suffering will end, though God promises that. Both of those realities that we are assured of, that we've been given, those are great comforts, but they're not the ultimate comfort. If those were the ultimate comfort, then we could go through suffering, feeling no sense of sadness or despair because we have those two as our comfort. What's the ultimate comfort? The ultimate comfort in our suffering, in our sorrow, as we see evil persist and get worse and I want you to think about suffering that you are going through personally, the trials that you're going through, the difficulties you're going through, the ultimate comfort in the midst of those realities is not an explanation of why they're happening or not a promise that they will end, but a revelation of God himself. It's that those trials bring you to a place where you see him and you know him and you love him to a depth that you never had before. I love the poem called The Thorn by Martha Nicholson. She writes it this way. I stood a mendicant of God. Mendicant is a beggar. I stood a beggar of God before his royal throne. I begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift out from his hand But as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn. And it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift, which thou has given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore. As long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. If you want more of seeing Christ, maybe his answer today is, Here's a trial. Maybe his answer today is here is suffering. But if your prayer is, God, I want to see you. I want you. I want to know you. I want to love you. Then though you know your suffering has reasons and explanations, and though you know it will ultimately have an end, you say in the midst of it all, God, if I get more of you, come what may, if I get more of you, this is why Jesus stayed behind in John 11. You remember Mary and Martha? Jesus, the one whom you love, our brother Lazarus, is sick. Come, be with us, come help us, ultimately heal him. And you remember it says that he stayed in behind, didn't go to Bethany, stayed, and waited until Lazarus died. And it says that he loved Mary Martha and Lazarus. So he stayed behind. Why? Because he says, I want them to see the glory of God. I want them to see the glory of God. So I'm going to allow them to go through something incredibly painful in order to experience something so incomprehensibly glorious. Brothers and sisters, we've been through those moments before, right? Whereas we go through the trial, we go, I-, I want out and I never would have signed up for this. But once we get to the end, we go, wow. I never would have signed up for that. But now I'm really glad it happened. That's what James Montgomery Boyce said. We'll close here. And again, I just think that this is so appropriate for the news that we've heard this weekend to be thinking through the suffering, trials, sorrow. He had liver cancer pastor of a church. He had liver cancer and he told his church, this is in May of 2000, as they were asking him, how should we pray for you? He said, should you pray for a miracle? Yes, you're free to do that. Please do. He said, my general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can and does, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So though miracles do happen. They're rare by definition. And then he says this. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. God's in charge. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you would change it, you would make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So as we've gone through the despair of the end times and the Antichrist rule and reign of evil. And we see from this moment in human history till that moment, evil will continue. It will abound. It will succeed. It will flourish. And we go, okay, God, I want to change that. I want to change that. God says, if you change it, it wouldn't be as good. And so we take that on a cosmic level. This is what we've done every Lord's Day. We take that as a, at a cosmic level and we bring it down to our individual circumstances. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're going through in your life, if you say, God, I want out, I'm done. If you would change it, God says it wouldn't be as good. And the reason why we know that without a shadow of a doubt is because of what it, Christ accomplished at the cross. You change the sufferings of our Savior, and it won't be as good. But he goes through his sufferings, he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead, and he's able to say, it's finished, and it's good. So to that end, I want us to ponder and meditate on our own suffering our own trials, our own circumstances where we are struggling to wait, to pray through active waiting, to pray through a a trust and a hopeful waiting, to pray through a realistic waiting, but to come to the cross together. And as we sing, let's meditate on these realities to come to the cross together and to remind ourselves, no pain is ever wasted. And that started with our savior at the cross. Not one drop of blood was wasted. So, may we entrust ourselves to our Savior who loves us, who gave himself for us to make sure that every pain we go through is purposeful to the revelation of his glory in our lives. God, we thank you so much for these profound realities that we get to look at over and over again. And our hearts are broken as we see our loved ones, as we see our family members, as we see dear brothers and sisters going through such trials, sufferings, hardships. And we're reminded this morning that you are working in it. And if we would change it, which we want to, if we would change it, it wouldn't be as good. And so, Father, we pray with hope in our hearts, knowing that you will reveal your glory in ways we couldn't possibly understand, couldn't possibly comprehend. You are working, and we trust that because of these elements, because we stare at the cross and we see a a murdered Savior, and we think there's no way this can be good. Every plan of yours has failed because he's on a cross being murdered by Gentiles. There's no way that this is going to end up good. And yet that's the best thing that's ever happened to us because through the cross and the resurrection, our sin has been paid for in full. We've been reconciled to you, our heavenly father. And now every moment that we go through of trial, of suffering and of pain has a purpose and a meaning to see more of your glory. So father, give us faith. Even as we partake of these elements together, together, give us faith to receive these realities from you, the grace that you would give to us in remembering the gospel and the cross. Give us hope for the days ahead. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.